I'm Lara Land, somatic coach and yoga teacher trainer, and this is the Beyond Trauma podcast. What a couple of years we have had. The challenges continue to grow, and more and more of us are experiencing some level of traumatic stress. My commitment here is to bring you the most up-to-date insights on exactly how trauma affects our mind-body-spirit system and how we can work with our bodies to soften its impacts. You will be hearing from trauma survivors and researchers, and together, we are going to incorporate what they have to teach us to heal ourselves and promote the well-being of all those around us. Here we go. Welcome back, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. I am very, very excited to release this episode. Today, I have on Kerry Kelly. She's the founder of Citizen Well, a movement that is democratizing well-being for all. She's been teaching yoga for over 20 years, and she is known for making waves in the wellness industry by changing norms, disrupting systems, and mobilizing people to act a community organizer, a wellness activist, and author of the recently released book, American Detox, The Myth of Wellness and How We Can Truly Heal. Carrie is recognized across communities for her inspired work to bridge transformational practices with social justice. Carrie is a powerful facilitator, TED speaker, and the host of the prominent podcast, Citizen. In this conversation, we talk about the perpetual and often unspoken trauma present in our country due to the systems in place that have created and sustained a health, education, wealth, and wellness gap, where some are able to seemingly thrive and others are given so little. We also talk about what it does to us to be on the privileged side of that chasm and the ways it trains us to be isolated, numbed out, scarcity-focused, and lonely. We also discuss an evolving definition of the word wellness and the importance of the agency to decide what that word means for us. Friends, we cannot talk about trauma without talking about systems. In some ways, this is the first and very most important conversation that we needed to have on this podcast. And in many ways, we are just getting started. There will definitely be more speakers on to shed light on this important topic. I encourage you to really listen to this one with your whole body, feel how Carrie's words resonate, even where they trigger you, and make sure to listen all the way to the end where Carrie shares a very important message about how we all have skin in this game. I got you at probably one of your busiest times, would you say, or was it busier like writing the book? Uh, You know, I don't know. It feels different, right? Writing the book required so much focused time for me, so I had... I had really, really intense boundaries around how I could engage with the world because it was just too easy for me to get sort of like sucked into a rabbit hole of news or, you know, conversation or people because I wrote this book during the pandemic. And so, so that was just a different kind of engagement. And yeah, now I'm sort of like engaging with the world. I'm having lots of conversations. I'm on the road, I'm traveling. And so it's a different kind of busy, but, but this is fun. You know, I feel really energized and filled up by this kind of work and interaction. Cause I just, I really love being in conversation with people about American detox, about this work. 
Yay. So then let's do it. <laughs> um, I want to, I, I read the book a, a couple of times through. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah, Thank you. The research. I'm like really into the research part of this uh, yes. podcast project. <laughs> and you know, this podcast is a kind of centered around trauma. So I was really looking at yeah. the book from that framework. Yeah. And in the book, you talked about two personal traumas that you went through. I mean, maybe there were more, but there were two that really stuck out to me. I mean, the, the overarching one is is 9-11 yeah. and, and your loss, but there's also a sexual assault in there. And I wondered if you would be open to sharing a little bit about those experiences and how yeah. they impacted you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, and the thing that I'm learning about trauma, and I'm sure you could say more about this, is that I mean, I'm sure there's many things I've been shaped by that I'm not conscious of. So there's like the events, right? And the coping, the patterns that came out of those events that have shaped me to this day. And and certainly 9-11 was one of them. And and also, you know, my parents divorced. They got divorced when I was one one or two years old, I think, right? So that was that was another really big shaping that, you know, kind of made me who I am today, made me kind of the independent go-getter that I am. And yeah, and I, and then I had you know a date rape that I didn't talk a ton about, but I've also had you know an abortion. Anyway, I'm just like mapping. Like there are many things that have imprinted themselves onto me over the years, and having to reflect on them and the ways in which I've been shaped, the patterns that I've developed because of them, who I've become, right? The coping mechanisms, and also like how to heal, right? Like detox really is a reference to the ways in which we can untangle and unhook ourselves from some of the the unhelpful and unhealthy patterns and shaping, survival shaping that we take on, right? That we develop, right? Because of the things that happen to us. But the other thing that I, I explore in this book that I don't hear talked about as much is the shaping of socialization, right? Mm-hmm. Like the forces of socialization and how pervasive, right? And persistent they are in how they train us, right? And condition us to play our prescribed roles in these systems, in these very unequal and unjust systems of oppression and privilege. And so that too was a big place of curiosity for me, Lara, because you know, I've done a ton of like trauma-informed work and I've done a lot of work to really like become aware of the events that happened to me and the way they imprinted themselves on my body. And also like a lot of grappling with like how the person I am today has been shaped by those events and not just in bad ways, right? Mm-hmm. Also in really positive ways and, and, and probably because I've done a ton of work and a ton of healing around them. But the thing that's really, I'm really stuck around is how have we been imprinted by socialization, by dominant culture, by the messages we've been getting for as long as we've been alive on the planet from every direction, right? From the families that we've grown up in to the the schools and the institutions that we've navigated to media, right? And culture and messaging and and what has been the impact of that in our bodies and in our minds. And in how like I've been shaped around whiteness and how I've been shaped around thinness and how I've been shaped around my gender, right? My cisgender in in a patriarchal context and how I've been shaped by capitalism and scarcity mindset. So those were also some like really big questions I explored in this book that I, I think 
I believe, right, imprint themselves in similar ways to trauma. Yes. Yes. You said a lot there. Um, absolutely. And I like how you made that connection. It's like, what is trauma, right? The the impact is some kind of, I love how you describe it, you know, reshaping or imprinting and it stays with us, right? So we're changed by these, by these events. Yes. And I just had someone on a psychologist who spoke about that all the research is about these like sort of big 9-11 events or war. And we're actually finding that people can recover quite well from those kind of singular large events. But this kind of unceasing takeover, mm-hmm. takeover, right, uh, um, of the way we think by this social conditioning that you're describing may just be a lot harder to actually recover yeah. from. Yeah. And I don't know that there's a lot of research around it, to be perfectly honest. You know, I, I did, you know, I obviously like looked everywhere. Um, for, yes, you did. <laughs> you know, for, I like looked under every rock. You know, there's some really great work by Bobby Harrow, who is a, a professor of sociology around the cycle of socialization and how pervasive and persistent it is. And that's when I started to get really curious. And but I, I looked and looked and looked to see if others had kind of made that connection. And so I, I want to know about this therapist that you mm. talked to, but I haven't, I haven't found a lot about it. And I, and you know, that's, I feel like the growing edge of my own healing, because I've actually done a ton of work around the traumatic events that have happened to me. And I'm not, you know, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm ever fully healed. Right. But I'm, but I'm increasingly more aware of how I've been shaped by those events. And also I'm more mindful, right? And more present to the ways in which those patterns still emerge in my body, right? When I get tripped or triggered, how I default, right? To those old coping mechanisms, especially when I'm not paying attention. And I didn't find as much around, to your point, the kind of reoccurring noise of socialization that I think has has landed on and in our bodies in ways that we probably are unaware of. Yes, very unaware of, and that we keep kind of recycling out, right? Yeah, repeating, right, and relooping. And, you know, my work around understanding and dismantling whiteness, right, and investigating internalized superiority because of how I've been shaped in a white body in the United States really started to expose that for me. Because intellectually, I could say, I don't believe those things, right? But behaviorally, (laughs) right, the way that whiteness moves through my body, right, through my actions, my behaviors, my interactions, my reactions, indicated to me that I had a lot of work to do, that there was some stuff that I had internalized that I was unaware of that was, you know, not just acting itself out in the world, but was obviously reinforcing and replicating uh, really toxic and harmful ideologies and patterns and dynamics in the spaces that I moved in, in the relationships that I, you know, I exist in. And so anyway, so that was an invitation for me to like go deeper and take a harder look at myself. It seemed like Carrie, that the personal traumas that you went through led you to yoga and that the yoga was a part of the healing, but then was also part of waking you up to some of this, the systemic problems that we have, because you saw them being played out in yoga spaces and you saw that lack of connection 
to like the greater. So it became, so this thing that was like yes. healing you and help, like, you know, was focusing on you also had a strong limit and was doing harm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because when I think about all of this is, is very paradoxical for me because, you know, I was called to yoga after 9-11 because I, I was navigating the unimaginable and I was lost and I was grieving and I was in pain and I, I didn't know how to make sense of the world anymore. Like everything that I had learned up until that moment was just like destroyed by that event. And I, I just say that because I think a lot of people are turning to wellness and to practice right now. And in this particular moment, that is also an, a moment of uncertainty and great calamity and suffering. And it's no wonder, right? Like that folks are like, how do we show up in this moment, right? How do we face the uncertainty and the chaos of this moment? And so I resonate with that deep, desperate yearning, right? And I also want to just acknowledge that a lot of what hooked me, I think, when I look back and I'm really honest with myself, was the false promise of purity, was this idea that I could escape my pain, mm -hmm. that I could transcend the suffering, that I could purify myself of all of my, you know, all of the socialization that I, you know, of all of the trauma and shaping, right, that we were just talking about that I could perfect, right, myself. There was a real promise of perfection. Even when wellness was selling me the idea that I didn't need to be perfect, it was telling me that I had to buy more. Yes. Or be more, right? And so it was insidious, right? The ways in which I was sort of hooked into that culture. And, right, so this is like the big both and. To your point, you know, I think that when, when you really do the practice, and I don't mean just the asana practice, but even that sometimes can be incredibly powerful and profound. But when you're really doing the practice, I do think it is inevitable that the practice will reveal the truth, that it will become impossible for you not to see and not to reckon, right, with the whole of who you are. And that's exactly what happened to me, right? So I got hooked on, you know, if you will, the, the toxicity of wellness and the allure, the carrot stick. But through the practice, I actually think I woke up to clear seeing. And then I had to reckon with the contradiction, right? The paradox of wellness, that wellness is also situated inside of these very unequal and unjust systems and isn't wellness for all people, right? It's really wellness for some, wellness for the privileged, wellness for white people, right? Wellness for able-bodied people. And so that's when I started to ask, start, you know, started to ask really hard questions about why do I get to benefit and be well when so many are suffering? So many are denied very basic human conditions of survival, much less thriving. And that's when sort of my orientation around wellness started to shift. I started to not think of wellness as your warrior pose or how long you could sit in a meditation, but I started to think of wellness as whether or not people were getting paid a living wage mm -hmm. or whether people had a roof over their head or whether they had clean water and access to healthy food. And that's sort of where my practice has gone. Yeah. I was going to ask you where you are with your practice and how you define that today. So that's yeah. I mean, like it's constantly evolving. I mean, that's the other thing I think I'm learning about wellness is that wellness is different for different people. So even the way in which I'm trying to like stretch 
the frame, right. And the orientation around wellness. I also acknowledge that like people need different things and what it is to be well, what it is to get what you need, what it is to feel safe and feel whole is going to be really different for different people. And so some of where I've gotten around wellness is that we need to create the conditions where people can engage in wellness and can be well on their terms, where they get to be self-determined about wellness. And so that there's no one protocol, right? There's no one right way. There's no one way in which wellness looks, which is often what we see in magazines or advertisements, or even at the front of a a yoga studio, right? Who's leading the classes, but that wellness can mean any number of things in any given moment. And that it changes for me all the time. That is really beautiful, Carrie. Yeah. Um, Because it really goes back to agency, which is, you know, what the main thing that's lost in a a trauma. Um, Yes. A hundred percent. I love that you just said that. And, you know, so much of like the service part of wellness, right? We see a lot of people being called to karma yoga or serving is around increasing access of wellness services, which often excludes agency, right? And I saw a lot of people over the years, especially with my work with Off the Mat and Into the World and just being in community, advocating for the democratization of wellness, that people would assume what that means is bringing meditation or yoga into spaces where it doesn't exist. And I would often ask those people, like, how do you know that's what they want? How do you know that's what they need? So when we get in relationship and we show up from a place of curiosity, right? And we build trust with communities and in relationship. And and often when we ask people like, what do you need? What do you want? Rarely do they say, I want meditation. Um, Often they say, you know, I want to get out of poverty. I want to be able to walk down the street safely and not fear for my life. I want my kids to have the best education, right? And to feel safe growing up. That is so much of what I heard from people who aren't, you know, part of dominant wellness groups about what it means to be well. And so that shifted everything for me. I was like, oh, wait a minute. Like we have to stop assuming we know what people want. We have to stop doing like wellness missionary work in the way that we like Mm -hmm. bring wellness and assume people want what we have. And we need to start asking questions and building relationships and listening. And that to me is where the wellness practice, that's to me is the growing edge of the wellness practice and and the wellness culture, if you will, is to start to stretch our imagination around what it looks like and what it could be. Wow. That's beautiful. That's given me a lot to think about, as did a lot of your book. I mean, the striking statistics around the well-being gap, around life expectancy that you lay out in the book is really, really shocking. Yeah, the well-being gap, you know, that was an idea that when I started to think about wellness as the many critical social and economic issues of our time, I started to look at all the gaps, right? The education gap, the income gap, the opportunity gap, the health gap, and started to really be an inquiry around what is in the way of people being well, right? And what is the gap between those who get to be well and those who don't? And that's how I define the well-being gap, the unequal conditions right? That the unequal conditions and, and the, and the deeply unequal systems and structures, right. That have been designed to keep some people well and others not right. That determines who gets to be well and who doesn't. And that can look like a lot of different things, right? It intersects with the medical industrial complex. It intersects with the prison industrial complex. It intersects with our education system, right? It intersects with 
climate change and the places, right, the front lines of climate change where some communities are facing the deeply disproportionate impacts, right, of environmental degradation. And so anyway, so to me, like wellness demands that we ask really hard questions about what's in the way of wellness for everyone, but also start to see and consider how wellness is actually in many different sectors. It's an issue that is all encompassing and can intersect at many different levels and in many, in many different sectors and issues. And that's how we have to play. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm just, as I'm listening to you and I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking about the, the listener listening, it's like, and we're back to a topic that, that we've hit on a couple times here at the podcast about how to move. Like you hear all that and you feel that overwhelmment, right? I almost go mm-hmm. into that triggered state of like, whoa, that's like, how do I, yeah. right? <laughs> like, how do I, little me, like affect all of that, right? And so like, I'm wondering for folks that are like, yeah, I want to do something. I want to do better. I mean, Carrie, you've done so much. What would you advise them? I mean, I think that, and I just want to validate what you're saying, because I think the overwhelm and also rate right, our access to social media, just the information overload. You know, our nervous systems aren't meant to hold this much. It's reasonable, I think, to be overwhelmed by what's happening in the world and by the complexity of it and the enormity of it and the calamity of it. And I think it's really important as we feel into those feelings. Well, first of all, I think it's important that we feel into those feelings, right? And and pay attention to the ways in which we want to numb or disconnect or escape, right? And wellness is a part of that offering, right? Often it says like positive vibes only, like don't do that, you know, <laughs> disconnect. Self-care sometimes, right? Can be misunderstood as a way in which you get to escape reality. And I think it's really important for us to understand that we're actually not alone, right? I think some of the toxic culture of individualism that we have internalized in our bodies and in our minds makes us feel like we are the only ones that can save the world. And then, and we're alone in that. And only we, you know, know what's best for everyone. And I think that is overwhelming for the system. The cost of individualism is that we've actually come to believe that we're alone in this and therefore we isolate ourselves. Yeah. We refuse to reach out. We think it's a weakness to ask for help. And so to me, the very first step is to realize that you're not alone in this. And often the way that we do that is we show up. (laughs) Um, Sometimes we show up on our block. Sometimes we show up for our neighbors. Sometimes we join a group. Sometimes we support an organization in solidarity. Sometimes we hit the streets and we march. Sometimes maybe we risk our bodies in civil disobedience, right? Sometimes we vote, right? Voting is a beautiful ocean of engagement. And so I think like when we engage, we remember the truth of our interdependence and that we're actually not alone in this. It's not up to us to solve all of the problems. We're a part of something much bigger than ourselves. And when we have an embodied and visceral experience of that, I think that quells a lot of the overwhelm, right? And it combats, right? It counters that deep-seated belief, right? That we are individual and separate and alone and out on our own. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I think that's one thing, right? Is get engaged, lean in, get in conversation with people. Often what I tell people to do is to start a small circle, right? Start a book club, gather your friends to watch the hearings or to watch the polls come in. 
or go vote together or show up in mutual aid, right? For people in your community who need help. So anyway, so I think there's lots of different ways to engage. I love when people engage in infinity, right? Like, so mom's gathering either an anti-racism work or against gun violence or teachers gathering or yoga teachers, right? Coming together and trying to like find more bridges between the yoga practice and the yoga teaching and systemic and collective change. And so anyway, so I think remember that you are not alone, right? Is one part Two, you know, start to get together with your people, have courageous conversations, start to get engaged together, right? And often what comes out of those two things is a greater capacity to hold the many challenging and complex issues of our times, right? I mean, that to me is what the practice is about. It's about building our capacity to show up despite everything, to show up for the many uncertain and emerging events and crises and needs, right? That are emerging every day. And, I totally and so agree. Right. Like, and so the yoga, the meditation, but also the community building, the courageous conversations are a way in which we can build muscle. You know, Resma Menachem calls it reconditioning. It's like doing reps. We need to do reps to build a greater capacity to show up for, I don't know what, but for something. Yes. Yeah. And that's where, yeah, so much of the way that we've been given the yoga and some of these other like self-care and wellness practices has not work those muscles, right? Like what you were saying, first of all, the selling of it, like that everything will go away and everything will be happy. And I feel like I've been fighting that marketing, even just in the way I, you know, I show up as a coach and a teacher for like 20 years now. I'm like, no, it's, it's not, instead of us thinking about the, when you reach some level, life is just going to be like good and shiny. Maybe you'll just be like a little bit more able to deal with the fact that it isn't. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. And, I mean, I think some of what I grapple with in this book, and I, I struggled with this because I didn't want to be doom and gloom. And yet I do think it's important that we get real about the fact that climate change is not going away. We're not going to solve it, right? The best we can do is slow it down. And while we slow it down, imagine and invent, right, new alternatives to extractive systems that are continuing to harm the earth and harm us. And a lot of what we're seeing politically and economically, right, is evidence that our systems are collapsing. These really unequal systems are collapsing and eroding Mm -hmm. (laughs) and kind of falling apart right before our eyes. And so, so you're right, this fantasy that if we just get a better job or make more money or move to a cleaner part of the world or move out of the country, or, you know, I hear a lot of that right now, that we can escape these deeply global and interconnected issues and we can't, right? So my practice is like, okay, this is happening, right? Like, it's like, this is happening. Let's tell the truth about what's happening and let's be in a conversation about like, okay, how do we navigate collapsing systems? How do we navigate the ways in which it feels like the world is falling apart so that we can do the least amount of harm, right? So that there is the least amount of suffering, yeah, right? And also simultaneously so that we can imagine differently, so that we can build different things that take care of more people, right? So that there can be joy and dance and art and celebration at the same time. You know, some of my most like joyful experiences are in the midst, right, of confronting some of these crises or they're in the middle of movement work, 
that's where I feel the most joy and possibility is actually when I'm doing the work of engaging in navigating or showing up or resisting or demanding better um, for ourselves and one another. And so that's sort of my practice right now. It's not like, how do we turn everything around entirely? Or how do we cure everything? Or how do we fix? It's like, no, how do we walk through this really messy, hard moment together? And how do we reduce suffering along the way? And how do we be joyful, right? Mm. As we walk together. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree, Carrie. I find that, you know, it's when I sit around and think about it and, you know, do the doom scrolling you were describing earlier, like, yeah, then I feeling in that overwhelmed space. But the second I just take an action, like, um, you know, I've been making calls for gun violence this week and like, you know, just doing something right immediately. Like I feel joyful. I feel like a little more empowered and like actually the capacity builds to do more. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that advice. I love that advice. I think like the other problem and you gave really such great advice for that feeling of overwhelm, you know, just kind of like highlighting what you said about realizing that we're not in this alone and that myth of isolation, which I think we could talk about more. I think the other thing that happens is there's also this scarcity narrative, right? That, That runs through the country, this country and convinces a lot of folks, like I have definitely been in that space that are totally privileged and have enough and are fine that, you know, like maybe if I just get a little more, then I'll be in a place where I can be more in mutual aid, right? It's like, how can we work on recognizing like the safety nets that we already have and feeling more safe and dropping out of that narrative so we can see how much we have and that we have plenty. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just thank you for bringing that up because I, you know, I want to confess that like, oh God, scarcity comes up for me. I mean, this is what I mean by like the pervasiveness of socialization of internalized limiting beliefs, like scarcity comes up for me every day. I don't have enough. I'm not enough. You know, I'm not deserving. And I mean, and it's, it's so multidimensional, right. In how small it makes us feel and how it really does, you're right, hold us back from our potential. Well, so first of all, scarcity is a lie and it is a lie constructed by a system that benefits off of people feeling like there is not enough to go around and thriving off of that belief system, right? And and I'm talking about, you know, like toxic capitalism and extractive economies. And the problem is not that there is not enough to go around. The problem is that there is a deeply unequal distribution of wealth and resources. And even when I think about, you know, the United States right now makes up 5% of the population and yet consumes 25% of the world's resources. Just it, right? So not even to personalize it between like billionaires and like just the U.S.'s footprint is deeply unequal, right? Is disproportionate, right? To the needs of our whole planet. And so that's where I, I would begin, right? When I think about scarcity, when I get caught up in that mentality, I have to remember that there is enough. There's enough for me. There's enough for everyone. And so how can I be a part of the, the radical redistribution? of resources and wealth? How can I disrupt the myth, right? That there's not enough to go around or the places where there's too much. And how is that in my own life, right? Like 
I live with this question all the time. Like what's enough? What is enough in my life and my lifestyle? Yeah. Um, right. And how can I live into that value with the understanding that the space that I take up, the resources that I consume impacts other people, right? Like there's an impact because we're, we all share, right? We all share this earth. We share these resources. We share this land and this air. And so anyway, so I think that's some of the grappling that I have done around scarcity on a kind of material level. And it has required me to have like a systemic analysis, right? Of a culture and a system that isn't just selling us the lie that there's not enough to go around, but that benefits from it, right? So we have to call bullshit on that, quite frankly. And then there's the internalization of not enoughness that I just want to name is so pervasive for me. Holy crap. Like, I mean, even writing this book, right? I mean, you can see like when your listeners read this book, this book is really dense and there's a lot in this book, right? So like the book in and of itself, I think is a, an embodiment, a demonstration of like all of the ways in which I was like, there's not enough. I have to put more in the book, Mm. right? I have to tell more. I have to add more footnotes. I have to Mm. give more resources. And, you know, and even when I finished the book, it felt wholly inadequate, right? Mm. And I had to be at peace with the reality that I did the best that I could. And it's not perfect because there is no perfection and it probably could be better, right? I'm sure I made mistakes in this book. And I did the best that I could. And I hope that it, you know, it does its part in the world. And so anyway, so like interrogating those thoughts, those narratives within ourselves that we tell ourselves about ourselves, about who we are, but also that, that instruct the ways in which we engage with resources and with the material world, with others, right? With enoughness, right? With money and wealth. I think those are really important questions we need to be asking, not just because I believe we deserve better, you know, and we can share my friend, Mark Gonzalez, who I interviewed for chapter eight in this book. He doesn't, this quote doesn't make the book actually, but there was one point where he was, he said, we tell our kids to do, we have to like play good in the sandbox together. You know what I mean? And he's like, we don't, we don't play good in the sandbox together. You know, like, in fact, you know, we don't share. Yeah. And we tell our children, we're, we say, share, share that toy. And yet we don't do that with each other. And I was like, I thought that was one of the most profound things I had heard, right? Like imagine a world and a culture where one of our core values is to share. Yeah. Right? And they are really watching as a mom to a three-year-old. <laughs> yes. They're they really watching what we do. Yes. What we do. Yeah. And there's so many, I want, I wanted to continue, but I just wanted to stop you, Carrie, because I'm still with you on like sharing vulnerably, like that not enoughness. And mm-hmm. like, what's just coming up for me that I feel so inclined to say to you is, and the other side of that coin is it's like, it's also what fuels you like yeah. doing such profound research. Yeah. And I also have to say that like seeing, you know, from another perspective, looking outside at like at you and of what you've done with your whole career of work and with this book is the ways that you like the ways that you use this book to also promote other people's material and, and quotes and the interviews and like the resources and the research that's in there and the way that you're getting other voices out there is very beautiful and very generous. Mm, Thank you for sharing that. And I'll share a quote that I learned from my dear friend, Michelle Cassandra Johnson, that I feel like speaks to the 
I don't know if you'd call it like a contradiction of not enoughness, but what she says is, yes, we are enough and we can do better. And I like, that almost feels like my mantra. Yeah. Like, yes, we, we are enough and we can do better. And it speaks also to accountability, right. And curiosity and knowing that we're all works in progress and we should be moving right in the direction of wanting to do better, of wanting to be better of wanting to grow, right? And contribute in more radical and impactful ways. Yeah, I'm taking that in. That's beautiful. That's that both and. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that complicated stuff that's, you know, hard to put in a meme, but yeah, it's really, these are the conversations that I feel like are so important to be having. Yeah. Yeah, I really, I really appreciate you and, and what you're bringing to the table. Thank you, Lara. I mean, I'll share that, like what gives me, and you know, I'm an organizer at heart. Folks are like, you're an author. And I'm like, I don't even know what that is, but I am <laughs> an organizer and I am a weaver. And I know that I am that because that is the work that gives me energy, right? That is the work that fills me up. That is the work that nourishes my soul and keeps me going. And I get fueled by conversations like this. Like I get by like the resonance that you and I are feeling with each other as we like, like, yeah, me too. And oh my God, I feel that. And oh, thank you for saying that. And right. Like that, that kind of interaction and relationality is actually food Mm. (laughs) and it keeps me going and it keeps me feeling like there is possibility for us, right. Even despite the really hard and messy things that we're facing right now, the tragedy after tragedy that we're exposed to and what feels like an avalanche of adversity, I feel possibility in relationship yes, and in conversation with people. And it reminds me that we're not alone. And it also reminds me that we are actually changing. We are actually moving in the direction, right? Of transformation and of becoming better together. Yes. I agree. And I'd love for you to maybe speak a little bit about your role as as a weaver and and some of your work maybe with Citizen Well and kind of share with us where that's at. Yeah. I mean, it's ever evolving and changing. And I, I'll share that that's one of the things I learned along the way is that you, you make a thing. I'm sure you can re- resonate with this. You make a thing, you launch a project or you write a book or, you know, you start an organization like I did with Citizen Well, and you think it's going to do one thing and then the world changes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if you're paying attention and you're brave, you realize that it needs to do another thing. And when we first built Citizen Well, we tried to build it like the NRA. We were like, okay, there's 80 million gun owners in the US and they're all a part of this NRA. And NRA clearly has so much power politically in government and is a culture, but also it's a force, a political force, a political lever. And so we were like, well, what if we built a wellness version of that? And so that's what we did. We built an organization that was doing, you know, nonprofit culture change work, but that was also trying to do advocacy work. And that was also trying, anyway, and that was sort of what we built. And then when Trump got elected, you know, I had been organizing and organizing people on the ground and in the field to show up in solidarity with different issues. And when Trump got elected and 53% of white women voted for Trump, I was like, oh shit, I think our work needs to be different. Like there's too many people who haven't come along in culture and in the conversation. Mm. So we started to shift gears and we were like, what if we redirected our energy and our efforts in starting to 
inspire courageous conversations at a community level and doing more culture shift work and putting out products that that were more far reaching and that challenged some of the dominant culture that was hooking people and convincing them that he was the right leader for our times. You know, that was just, I was flabbergasted by that. And we saw a lot of that emerge during the pandemic too, right? That wellness folks in particular were really vulnerable. Yes. To, to anti-vax messaging and yeah. to QAnon and to, to refusing mask mandates that protect our family and our friends and our neighborhoods and our communities. And so that's sort of where we chose to pivot and intervene and have been sort of trying to just like shift the conversation ever since. And so I just share that because that's been a big lesson for me in like, Sometimes you build a thing to respond to a need and then the need changes Yeah, and you have, and you have to be willing to adapt and shift. And so where we're, we're at now is, well, you know, citizen well is sort of what I call the, you know, it's like sort of the call to action for the wellness community to bridge their personal practice with politics, but also to learn the skills, to get the tools to be connected with the people and the leaders and the organizations on the front lines so that the wellness community can start to show up in mass yeah. for the political needs of this moment. And American Detox is a little bit different in that, you know, I wrote American Detox for the people who might not be ready to hop on a, you know, a citizen well call or to join a citizen well direct action who are curious about how to show up, but are still connecting the dots, if you will, and mm. still sort of waking up to the idea of wellness that lives beyond the myths, right? The idea of wellness that takes care of everyone, the idea of wellness that is the conditions for everyone to thrive on their terms. And so anyway, so like Citizen Well is sort of just like doing kind of like the deeper, more radical political actions and American Detox is really was really written to ignite a conversation with more people, right? To bring some of the mainstream wellness into the fold so that we can build larger conversation so that we can build power together so that we can show up for the work that's ahead of us. Oh, wow. Carrie, that's really good to know as I think about your book and sort of the broad reach that it could have. I have to say the reflection questions in it are some of the best I've seen. Um, Yay. I read a lot of books and I do a lot of self-reflecting. <laughs> like I'm the one that stops and does those portions and they are good. They are great. Yay. Um, yeah. Thank you for saying that. Those are, you know, I, you know, I had to, re I revised them a number of times and I was like, what are the questions that hit me in the gut? Mm. Like that was sort of my criteria. They do. Um, <laughs> they yeah. hit me in the gut too. <laughs> I mean, for me as well, you know, and, you know, so much of what shakes the tree for me especially given how proximal I am to power and privilege, how much I benefit right from these dominant systems that I'm challenging in this book is I have to reckon with the cost of a lot of these ideologies and limiting beliefs and dominant paradigms on my body and on my well-being, on the people that I love. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so those were some of the questions that really shook me to the core. And that's why I included them. Yeah. I mean, as we like sort of had, into our close ish. Um, maybe you want to speak <laughs> a little, a little more to that. I mean, we, we did a little bit yeah. with yeah. the isolation, but I think there's more to say there. The way that I'll talk about what you're naming is that so often, especially for white folks or folks with a lot of privileged identities, our point of entry into this work is through service. It's like, how do we help other, right? Or how do we do our part or how do we 
show up for folks who are being marginalized or harmed or oppressed by these systems. And I think that's a great intention. I think that's important because I think we should care about each other, right? We should care about other people. But I, I think often what that reinforces is this sort of this separation and this, this idea, this maybe unconscious belief that these deeply entrenched systems and cultures are actually not impacting us. That the system of white supremacy only harms people of color or that this, the system of capitalism, right, is only causing suffering for those living in poverty or that, you know, the legacy of colonization, right, only impacts the colonized and not the colonizer. And so a lot of what I've explored in my own practice as I've reckoned with the understanding that it's not just about helping others and and trying to be a so-called good ally or show up in solidarity. It's also about helping us, like all of us, right? Because when we understand ourselves as interdependent, as inseparable from one another, when we understand that our well-being and our liberation and our destiny, right, is bound up with one another, then we actually come to realize that we are all impacted by these systems, that they are harming all of us, though disproportionately, right, based on where we're located, which means that we have skin in the game. Like we have a stake in this. It's not about another person where you get to like, you know, I, I find that w- when people have that sort of belief, they get to opt into social issues or critical issues. And then they opt out because they don't think it has anything to do with them. It's someone else's problem. And I think some of what I came to understand in, in my work in the world and in writing this book is that these are all of our problems. These are all of our problems. And so a lot of these questions about what is the cost, what has white supremacy cost you, right? What has the culture of individualism, right? The culture that tells us that we are alone, that we must be self-sufficient and self-made, that we're not allowed to ask for help, that we don't need anyone. What has that cost you in your life, right? What is the scarcity mindset that says you're not good enough and there's not enough to go around? What does that cost you? Those questions, Lara, those were the ones that moved me. Like those were the ones that knocked me out of my stupor and called me, quite frankly, to not just like do service here and there or make it a project, but to make this my life, Mm. right? It is my life because the costs of those things when I audit my life and, and what I've been through are too high. They're just too high. And now, given where we are in the world and what we're facing, I think many can agree, right, that we're, you know, staring down possible extinction, that the suffering, right, that we're seeing all around us is too much, that the impacts of these really toxic systems and structures is too high. And so those, (laughs) you know, those are the questions that shook me to my core in my own practice, you know, I practiced this book. I didn't just write it for other people. I pra- I lived it for myself and my own reckoning and my own grappling. And I hope that they shake other people too. I hope they stir you up. I hope they, they help you realize that these are not just someone else's problems. These are yours and that you are not just a part of the problem. You're a part of the solution. You're a part of the possibility of who we can become, right? When we face the truth of who we are, And when we show up for the critical issues of this moment, 
And so that's sort of why I, I went there in my own practice. And it's why I included those questions in this book, because I just think there's too much at stake to play it safe and to play small. Love it, Carrie. I think that's a great place to land. I just want to ask you if there's anything I didn't ask you or we didn't reflect on that I should have. You know, the only thing I'll share, and you already named this, is that I didn't write this book in isolation. And what I was able to write in this book is the accumulation, the aggregate impact of so much teaching and wisdom, so many teachers and people who showed up for me and inspired me, but also held me accountable, who challenged me, right, to do better. And I try to name many of those people in this book and and tell people where they can find them and who I learned from, right? But it's an impossible task to acknowledge everyone that has shaped me and informed me over the 46 years of my life. And so I guess I just want to acknowledge that this book took a village and that I, I wouldn't have been able to do it were it not for the people who showed up for me and the people who have come before me and the people who will come after. And so anyway, so this book mm. is a dedication to them. That's beautiful. The book is called American Detox, The Myth of Wellness and How We Can Truly Heal. It's available all the places. All the places. <laughs> all the places. Um, and everyone should get it and review it and five-star it and all those kind of things because it's something that needs to be out there and live on and on and on. And you're spreading the word, Carrie. Thank you so much for your good works and your hard works. Lara, thank you for having these brave conversations about trauma and socialization and how we can heal and also how we show up for the big systemic stuff. I'm really grateful to have people like you in the conversation. As we buzz around the busy world, it becomes clear there are billions of paths. As we buzz around the busy world, we will appear in other people's photographs. As we speed through the centuries, we will collide and the light will bend. We will be accidentally immortalized in someone else's land.